Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, Episode 9. Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, which is dedicated to helping you build better products and get the press you deserve. This week's guest is Vinay, and he is the author of a fantastic book called How to Speak Tech. And as soon as I saw this book and I saw the quality and how good it is, I knew that I had to have Vinay on the show because everything that he is teaching is exactly the same stuff that I am trying to teach my listeners and my readers, which basically is if you don't have have a background in tech, what is the base knowledge that you need in order to be successful in the tech industry? And this book goes into detail with everything you need to know, whether you are trying to hire developers or you're working with a team of developers, like in a larger company, you read this book, you will be able to speak tech. So we're going to jump right in. We go over a lot of the tech terms. If you like this podcast, please go onto iTunes, rate it, review it. It really helps me out. And here is Vinay, the author of How to Speak Tech. So Vinay, welcome to the show. Great. I'm excited to be here, Dan. Yeah, thank, thank you very you. much. Um, so you just wrote a book, and it is a fantastic book. I just finished it. It's called How to Speak Tech. And first of all, fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I wanted to have you on the show because a lot of my audience and the things that I teach are very, very, very much suited to what you're having. So it's a no-brainer for me to recommend this book. So can you just kind of describe briefly what is How to Speak Tech? Certainly. Uh, so How to Speak Tech is essentially uh, a book that explains the basic technologies and terms of internet startups, of web applications. You know, we, we, we hear so much about you know, new tech startups, new tech apps, even established companies and organizations are all trying to you know, release some sort of new online uh, product. Uh, yet relatively few of us understand just the basic technical components of it. And so this book tries to explain everything uh, in sort of simple language. Yeah, and you walk kind of through step by step from like the very basics of like what is a cloud and what is meant when people say something's in the cloud to really the specifics of building an app, debugging, all that kind of great stuff. Yeah, it's, you know, the... the the way in which I sort of came up with all the topics was essentially I tried to chart the journey of a typical application, a typical startup. Uh, you know, wh- what are the sorts of problems that individuals are thinking about at first? For, you know, from you know, what programming language should we choose? To uh, all right, great, we have a we have a programming language. How do we uh, how do we actually allow the user to interact with it? All right, great. Now we're we have users. How do we scale this? How do we secure this? And so. By charting the journey, hopefully I've covered all of the most relevant aspects of the technologies. So what is your background? And tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book. Sure. So I have a computer science background uh, from Harvard and have always been interested in technology and education, uh, entrepreneurship. I worked, I've worked at a few tech startups most recently. It was called Loku. It was acquired last summer. I have some experience in, in venture capital and some later stage investment, what, what I do currently, and, and have always been interested in education. 
I started a nonprofit uh, several years back that uh, taught technology to senior citizens. I volunteer currently with the New York City Foundation for Computer Science Education, which is trying to get computer science instruction into every New York City school. Uh, and you know, th this book, I've always been interested in these few things. And <clears throat> ultimately, I think there's a real need for a book like this. Uh, in all of my experiences, whether it was at the startup or, you know, investing, whatnot, I've realized that the non-technical people really struggle to understand even the basic aspects of the technology. And that often hindered the conversation, hindered our development. And, you know, in this world where, you know, where this distinction between tech people and non-tech people, uh, you know, the math science people and English history people, you know, that divide is no longer existing. Uh, technology is creeping into every industry, into every job, and is sort of disrupting it, requiring people to to understand at least the basics so they can, you know, engage in these conversations intelligently. Uh, and I, I read a fact recently that, you know, 20% of the current job market has the, the requisite skills for 60% of the jobs that will be created in the 21st century. And, you know, that, that, a fact like that, I mean, really speaks kind to... kind of scary. Yeah, right. So, so you know, I, I just think more people should understand... Uh, technology. And, and you know, not everyone needs to be an expert. Not everyone needs to be able to code Facebook in a week. But you know, at least understanding the basics, I think, is important. So did you write this book kind of with the 80% in mind? Like, is this for everybody else that doesn't uh, code? Or who is your, your audience in mind when you're writing this? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think the book is probably too simple for engineers out there who are actually developing these apps. It, it, it is for that that eighty percent. I, I think, you know, individuals who don't have a background uh, in internet tech in technology uh, generally, you know, people who don't understand at, at first when you when they hear terms like JavaScript, backend, database, uh, these sorts of terms, I think could could really benefit from from the book. Mm -hmm. No, the. The kind of question that I always, before I understood tech and started learning how to code and different things like that, I would always wonder, like when I picked up a technology book, when I finish this book, what kind of skill level will I be? Will I be the the equivalent of a couple of years of computer science or like where, where do you see people's skill levels when they finish this book? Is it even there or is it just being able to have the conversation? Where, where would you put them after this book? Yeah, uh, so I guess the first thing I would know is that this book doesn't teach people how to code. I, I think that um, you know, th there are other great resources, some things that are more interactive, that are more suited for learning how to code. This book covers all the major concepts, uh, not, not the theory, the academic theory that doesn't apply, but you know, the, relevant, uh, the relevant context to all of these technologies. And so I would say after someone reads this book, I would say they have a, a, a pretty strong introductory level, uh, introductory understanding of all of these technologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Like if somebody didn't really know programming or coding or had like a zero kind of technology level besides just going online, checking their Facebook and stuff. After this book, they'd definitely be able to have a conversation with their development team where it didn't just sound like a foreign language. They'd be able to understand the terms and kind of what was going on in general sense behind the scenes, which I think is super important. Yeah. I, 
Especially- I, I think I think that's that's definitely that's definitely part of uh, you know a goal of the book. I, I definitely want people to be able to understand uh, tech news, be able to work with their teams, be able to uh, <clears throat> you know manage their engineers if, if that's if that's their position. And, and you know at the very at, at the very least, and you know, on top of that is the fact that I, I would hope that people can actually teach themselves uh, you know more sophisticated technologies, more advanced parts of any any one of the technologies discussed in the book more easily now that they have uh, you know a basic understanding. Yeah, because I think the hardest part is sometimes you're interested in an area, but you just don't know the questions to ask, so you can't. It's hard to learn and get started because you don't even know the first place to look and you can't read anything because everything is a question. You don't know what questions to ask. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I have definitely been there. Before I you know, started studying computer science, I often found myself in, in, a, in a position where I didn't even know what types of questions to ask. I would look for certain terms on, on Google or in different resources, but wouldn't, you know, I would read things in different places, a blog here, a news article there, an academic textbook here, but I wouldn't necessarily know how to put all of that together and how would this concept that I just looked up connect to the concept I looked up last week. And it just never really all made sense to me. So I was hoping to bring all of those things that, together in, in this book. Yeah. And when I was in that stage too, I would sometimes find somebody who was a programmer or a coder and I would ask them a question. And I always felt like their answer was completely different than whatever I had found. And like they were making (laughs) connections that, yeah. And this one just straight out like lays it out, the the solid foundation, which is uh, fantastic. Also, if you have an idea for a tech website, like you use Facebook, you use Twitter, you use all of these other services, but you don't have a tech background, this will help you communicate with any sort of developers that you hire, you bring on board. It really help you get the website made because I think a lot of people have ideas for tech websites, but they don't come from tech backgrounds. And that simple fact kind of stops them from following that idea. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember one of the first conversations I was having with uh, with a friend when I was, you know, deciding to sort of push push uh, push forward with this book was, um, you know, it involved something like them explaining that Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest, like the way in which these apps work, were essentially like magic. They they didn't, they didn't know like how oh you know how, how does it remember who I am? How does it remember that my friend did this yesterday? And and I was thinking, you know. It, yeah, I guess, I guess it does seem magical if you don't understand the technologies, but w- people shouldn't think it's magic. People should know, under, understand how it's working and, and realize that they can create these things themselves. So that's definitely a goal. I want, I want people, uh, Obama says this very often, you know, everyone is sort of a consumer of these uh, technologies, but hopefully uh, with you know, a book like this, with you know, all of the things that you know, so many people are doing, uh, more and more people shift from becoming consumers to actually producers. Yeah, I think that's so important. So one of the first things your your book gets into when you first talk, start talking about programming languages uh, is the difference between front-end and back-end languages. And I remember when I first started learning, this was a big aha moment to me. I, I like Once it was explained, it was kind of like, oh, JavaScript versus Ruby, I kind of understand. So what would you say is the difference between kind of front-end and back-end languages? Sure. So at a simple level, the front end describes what a user of a web page sees. When you go to Facebook, 
Facebook and you see, you know, an add, add a friend button, or you go to you know, Twitter and you see tweet button, the tweet button. Uh, these things sort of describe the front end. It's, it's how a user interacts with the application. Now, after you click that button, this is where the back end comes in. What's actually happening behind the scenes uh, when you click that add a friend button? Presumably, you know, when you click add friend, the back end has to process this. It says, all right, this is who you are. This is who you want to be friends with. And now let me sort of make this interaction happen. So that's sort of the, at, the, at a basic level how the front and back end are separated. And I think that's it's important to note, uh, too, or something that might clear it up, too. People know that when you go to websites, you can kind of right-click, and there's this section that's called View Source, and it'll show mm-hmm. you a bunch of code on the website. And people will, or at least I would originally thought that, okay, well, if I did that, I get the code. I have Facebook. I can make Facebook. But really, all you're seeing <laughs> is the front end. That's what it, the website looks like. All the back end, that stuff is still hidden. And that's how the websites are like private and you can't actually just go and copy and copy that code and make a Facebook. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If, if, uh, if things were that easy, then you know, <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be hundreds of Facebooks out there. So you mm-hmm. know, Facebook and, and all of these sophisticated, uh, you know, startups and, and larger tech companies are very sophisticated in how they keep their technologies proprietary. So it's just certainly not that easy. Yeah, and uh, most of that work that they're doing is all back-end sort of languages. Mm-hmm. So your book kind of first explains low-level programming languages before getting up into the high-level languages. Now, what would you say, why is that important, and why did you get into that, and what kind of is it? Low versus high, I guess. Sure, so... Most languages that you know the, the the average person would sort of just pick up and start coding, uh, you know Python or, or one of these are high level languages. They allow us to code in a way that is uh, relatively natural. It, it 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 relates more to the way we think about logic and and what will express ourselves uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more mathematically, but still still more naturally. Uh, lower level languages are closer to what a computer understands and further away from how humans normally express ourselves. They, you, know, it, you, you, can, um, you really have to start thinking about things like memory and, and other aspects of bits and bytes and you know, basic terms that, uh, that, that are very familiar to a computer, but again, uh, further away from a human. And so there, there are pros and cons of each approach, as you can imagine. The closer you get, the higher level, uh, the higher, uh, level languages are, are often easier and f- faster to develop, but slower to run, because that language has to then be converted into something the computer can understand. And so, you know, it's great because you can get your website up really quickly, but if you have millions and millions of users, it may not necessarily be the most efficient. A lower level language, since it's very close to what a computer actually understands, it, it often takes longer for us to actually write a website in this language, so we won't be able to have it up as quickly. But as you scale, it's more efficient in the long run. So there's definitely a trade-off, and a lot of a lot of you'll see a lot of companies sort of, you know, do their first versions of the application in a higher level, and as they start picking up more traction, more users, and and they see the need to to make their website faster, they'll move and you know basically re- redo their application in in a lower level language. So you'd say uh, 
most likely like a, a startup that just is brand new that you signed up for is most likely a high level. But once you get into the size of like a Facebook or a Google, they're starting to write everything in the lower level type stuff. Yes, I, I would say that's that's generally the case. I mean, they, they, you definitely have to start thinking about optimization uh, and speed and efficiency when when you start getting into the millions and millions of users and perhaps billions. You know, mm-hmm. or if you're Google, you create your own language, like Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> your book doesn't specifically recommend a programming language to use. Why did you decide not to kind of? point people to a specific language? Yeah, I mean, look, that, that's, that's a good question. I think that, um, you know, it, it, it's, as, a, as, a, as a developer myself, you know, when I'm talking to a lot of people who are just getting into it the first time, everyone wants to know what's the best language. And the thing is, there isn't really a best language. It's, it really depends on what type of thing you want to code. Uh, there are, you know, every language has different structures or different ways of expressing that logic, as, as we explained earlier. And based on the type of application you have, certain, certain languages might be might be a better fit than others. And so really it's, it's more of a case by case basis. And so it's kind of hard for me to absolutely say one is better than the other. Um, and the, and the book sort of goes into, uh, some detail as to how you should think about making this decision, what types of things you should be thinking about both practically and also, um, sort of more theoretically on in terms of how the language is structured. Yeah. I wish I had read this chapter before I actually started learning because this was one of the toughest concepts for me to understand when I had decided I wanted to learn how to code because I had no idea where to start or what I really wanted to build. And then I felt like every time I tried to learn a language, it was always, okay, well, some sort of previous programming experience is required. I just couldn't really get it. And it, as I started learning, because I picked up, first of all, I tried with JavaScript a little bit, which is a front-end programming language, but it can also be used as back-end uh, back mm-hmm. Node.js. And I did some uh, Ruby with Rails. I did some Objective-C. And I kind of jumped around because I wasn't really sure where to go. But it kind of helped me realize what was important because I was understanding the same concepts, but how different languages did that. So I kind of realized, okay, well, an array, this is a concept, a variable is a concept, and here's how different languages kind of do it. So I learned that the hard way. I wish I had your chapter because that kind of explains (laughs) exactly that. Yeah, I I, I mean, I'm glad that the, that the chapter is sort of serving its, its goal. <laughs> so next, you kind of get into APIs, which uh, I find extremely helpful. And when I'm teaching people how to make apps, uh, I usually recommend if they're doing some sort of way to, they need data or information in their app, that they could get that using an API. But APIs are everywhere around the web. What is uh, an API the, the most basic terms, and how can it help somebody that's building a website? Sure. So, you know, the, the way I describe an API in the book is through uh, a weather a weather application example, um, and you know, I think that will probably be the easiest way to describe it here. Um, before I get into that, it's an API is sort of a way for a company, a website any organization that has this web, uh, you know, a website to extend their data or functionality to the user in a different way. So let's go into this weather example. 
let's say you wanted to access uh, basically the daily weather of New York City from 1950 to 1970. You wanted 20 years worth of daily weather data. Now, you can go to weather.com, for example, and go to each day's page and write it down manually. But you can imagine that's going to take a long time to do. Yeah, that would be terrible. So it would be awful, right? So if, if this weather website instead, through an API, made all of this data available for you to download after you submit to it a few, you know, a few parameters, it would be much easier. So you could basically, through the API, say, you know, the, my starting date, the starting year is 1950, my ending year is 1970, I want daily data. You would uh, submit this request to the API, and it would return to you in some format all of all of the data you needed, and so you can imagine that's going to be much quicker, and you know it'll save you a lot of time, basically. And so you'll see that in this example that weather uh, weather dot com, whatever weather uh, website this is, was able to reach a new customer, a new user, potentially several more users by making the same data it has available through some other mechanism. And that's generally the point of APIs. It's everybody helping everybody get better. Exactly. And, and, and I, exactly. And, and you can... So, so in this example, it's more extending data. So it's, it's, it's helping someone else do something quicker. If you look at something like Google Maps, you know, Google is, is great at sort of extending its functionality to other people and oftentimes for free. So if you were... Let's say you wanted a map on your website that you were building... Rather than trying to make a map yourself, which would take you, you know, wh- however long, you and your engineers, you know, why not just tap into the, the work that Google has already done and leverage their skills and expertise? It allows you to build your website much more quickly and allows you to basically use a map that is sort of <laughs> that has like the stamp of approval from an expert company like Google. So there are a lot of benefits, you, as you can see, in terms of efficiency, in terms of expertise you're leveraging. Uh, so the list goes on, and the, the, I think the book, the chapter sort of outlines you know, all of the pros and cons of both leveraging other people's APIs, but also making an API uh, available, you know, m- making your application have an API, uh, and discusses the pros and cons of those approaches. Now, how can people like find out what's even available in terms of APIs? So, you know, a lot, a lot of websites sort of have pushed, you know, pushed their APIs out there. I mean, there are definitely websites you can Google, you know, top APIs, or you can, you know, depending on your specific need, weather API or you know, map API. There are great resources out there that sort of outline, uh, you know all the companies that sort of offer their APIs. Now, each one sort of has their own things to consider. Some might be free, others might be paid. And there are pros and cons, again, of each approach. Um, but I would say that the people who have made APIs available definitely make it known. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the, the negatives of this, because it sounds like wonderful, everybody just sharing all their information, is if you're using somebody's API, you're also kind of beholden to them and you, you're application could depend on their service. And then if they, for some reason, decide to put some sort of restriction or they just cut it off completely, you're, you're kind of out. Yeah, that, that, 
that's exactly right. I mean, in, in many ways, you become dependent on sort of the pri- the provider of that API for their data for that functionality. If you know, to extend our to extend our analogy, if Google were to all of a sudden recall its Maps API, then obviously your Map function on your website would no longer work, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that could be potentially bad. So you know, you, you and your your engineers and whoever you're working with has to really think about um, whether you trust this API or not. Is this API going to uh, exist in the long run or not? Is it of good quality? And so, a lot of those decisions come down to personal judgment. But um, I think in this general age of information sharing and collaboration, um, and you know, th- there's definitely some part uh, sort of more selfishness in it as well, because when you extend an API, every time someone uses it, you're collecting data. What are they? What are they asking for? How often are they asking for it? You know, who are they? And so they obviously benefit from from getting that data. So um, I think I think because there there are mutual benefits to extending uh, APIs. I, I don't see that necessarily being as a huge problem. But again, one for personal judgment. Yeah, definitely. I, using APIs is, has way more pros than cons, especially in terms of like a map. You don't want to be out right. there like collecting <laughs> the map data for all over the world when it's just there and waiting for you. Exactly. But somebody like Google could start charging for it, which I think they did uh, a few years back, which uh, if you're using that, suddenly you have a, a new extra bill that you got to think about. Right, and and you know you would you would sort of as as with every business decision you would go through this sort of cost benefit analysis. Is it worth it for us to pay X dollars to Google per month or year, however they charge, uh, or is it worth it for our team of engineers to build this for one year? Is you know obviously that's going to be costly as well in terms of salary and time and you know opportunity cost that sort of thing. So, so. exactly, yeah, that's a big all, that's a business yeah, decision. A, yeah, exactly. So. Moving on a little bit further down and into sort of the development process and managing developers, one of the things that took me forever to kind of understand was version control. And your uh, book talks about version control in a really, really easy way. I love your grocery store analogy. Um, But can you talk a little bit about kind of shopping at a grocery store and how that's kind of like version control? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I must say, I must preface this by saying that uh, you know, these ideas are definitely borrowed from Khalid Azad, uh, and he, he's been he's been great in sort of helping visualize sort of difficult concepts. And you know, one which he was able to do very effectively, as you said, was sort of version control. And essentially, you know, taking a step back, version control essentially is is essentially uh, describes the way in which uh, multiple people will work on, you know, on a page together. Uh, you know, there, there are a few different types of ways that individuals have, can do this. I mean, one that some people might be familiar with, you know, using Microsoft Word and Excel and those sorts of things is file locking, where essentially if one person is in the file, another person who tries to, to open the file can't because it's locked. You can't, you can't go in. But you can imagine that could be inefficient, especially if the other person, you know, forgets to close it or you know, a variety of reasons can pop up there, but you know th- that's one method. But v- version control, as I describe it with you know, this grocery store example, is one where multiple engineers can work on the same files, and, and these files can essentially be merged together in a way that is hopefully uh, pretty seamless. But this specific example sort of walks through a grocery store where, <clears throat> and it uses each 
each item in a grocery store as sort of a new feature. And you know, essentially, you, know, you have a feature already that's called milk, and you wanted to add another feature called eggs. And so uh, basically, the, the diagrams of the book show exactly how eggs would merge with milk in a way that's seamless. Or you know, there's more sophisticated things where you know, we want to test whether a new feature of juice is actually good or not, uh, you know, compared to a new feature called soup. And so how exactly do these features sort of interact with the main product and how exactly are they either merged or basically, you know, discarded uh, is a way that that, um, that version control can be described in the show through these diagrams in the book. Yeah, because it can be really tricky if a lot of people are all working on the same project and everybody takes a different kind of feature to add. And you need to make sure that what one engineer is doing is not completely ruining or breaking another part of the system that somebody else is working on or when the two changes like they just conflict so yeah it basically helps uh ensure that everybody can work on it and that you're going to be merging them together a, a working uh product yeah and yeah again that that's that's the end goal of all of these systems is to help improve development time and it allows engineers to work together without compromising the quality of the of the end of the product mm-hmm. and there's a lot of different kind of ways or services that do this but i also wanted to bring up briefly uh, github because a lot of people have probably heard about that website and all they really know about it is that it's where programmers go and to put code but it, it's a full-fledged they have version control and it, it allows a lot of people to work on products through that, which is why it's kind of like they, they describe it as a social network for programmers because everybody's going on in coding. Yeah, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's you know, GitHub is, has definitely taken off. And, you know, I've actually, you, a lot of people actually not use it as, as a, a sort of a, a resume of sorts, right? I mean, people are sort of put the code that they've developed onto this website and, you know, other, other individuals are, to go in, you know, download it or look, look around inside, see what they've developed, and you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of smart startups are using this to make their hiring decisions, specifically for engineers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, engineers, of course, it's particularly helpful too if you are a programmer and there's some sort of difficult problem or something you're trying to solve. There's a, probably a good chance that somebody else is working on it on GitHub. And there's uh, a couple of different examples of how people have solved that similar problem that you can kind of get inspired and read how other people did it to kind of inspire your own work. Yeah. And, and that, that certainly happened with, uh, with me, uh, as well, you know, just personal experience that, you know, a few years ago, I remember, uh, I was working on an application with a friend and, you know, we were on, GitHub just looking around and we noticed that someone else was essentially solving the same problem, a slightly new one, slightly different, but you know, we, through GitHub, we just reached out and we had a conversation and you know, from there we were able to start working together and all of a sudden you notice that you know, engineers and you know, people generally in the tech world are more than willing to collaborate and I think this GitHub is sort of an example the fact that people are just throwing up their code that they spend hours and hours building, they're just putting it up there for everyone to see, just speaks to sort of how collaborative this environment mm-hmm. is. Yeah. One of the, the best way to really think about programming, if you're not in programming, is what you're doing is solving complex problems like puzzles using 
the the language, which is like the puzzle pieces. So you have kind of a concept in your mind, and it's like a puzzle that you need to fit these pieces together. So if you've been working on a really, really hard puzzle, and you were able to solve it, and it works, and it's fantastic, you want to share that. And if other if somebody else is interested in something that you did, it, of course you want to talk to them. And a lot of programming is very much like this, because it's really fun, challenging puzzles that you're solving along with other people. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's a great way to to describe it. And you know, it's it, it, just to go off your example, you, you you put together all these puzzle pieces, you create this master puzzle, and the thing, what's valuable to other engineers is one that that, that entire puzzle could be valuable, or just the way in which you put a few of those pieces together, like that particular functionality of the entire application could be something that I could use to create some entirely different puzzle. So these pieces can start 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 being moved around and. and and start complete other people's puzzles as well. And so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah it, so it's, it's great. It's like if we both live in the same apartment building and both shop at the same grocery store, but you go run one route and I go another one kind of seeing how you go could be like, Oh, well you cut through there. That's really interesting. I didn't know you could do that. Or I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, kind of moving even past the development process, one of the things I like about the book is you have an entire chapter dedicated to debugging and testing because just simply hiring a development team or having your development team build a product is, and then handing over the product is not the end. Um, you have to continue like testing it and there are inherently issues. So, what are the sort of bugs or problems that websites can run into once it's actually delivered and finished? Sure. So, yeah, I, I think I think your general point is absolutely right. Just because uh, any application, any any website sort of pushes out its product, does not mean it's it's it. that's it. that's it. that's it. Uh, that's usually never the, the last sign. And you know, actually, Reed uh, Reed Hoffman has a has a quote that that um, also sort of inspired me to push print on this book, even though I didn't think it was ready. And it, it, it's uh, at first, you know, of course, uh, is by the time you put a product out there, if you're not embarrassed, you've waited too long. And you know, this sort of, I was thinking about that. I'm like, wow, I guess, you know, in many ways that sort of speaks to what the tech community believes. Like, you know, push the product out there. There might be a few bugs here and there, but you'll be able to rapidly iterate on that feedback. And you'll be able to put out an, uh, even a better product next month, even a better product the month after that. And, you know, only by getting this feedback and sort of pushing things out there are you able to sort of realize where the deficiencies lies and where what strengths you should capitalize on uh, are. And so, yeah, certainly when, when, when engineers push out a product, there might be some bugs that exist. And, you know, those bugs can exist um, in a variety of, form, uh, variety of ways. Oftentimes, you know, there aren't as simple as syntax bugs since those are easy to catch. Those are essentially ones that, oh, you know, I misspelled uh, this variable's name. And so now the application doesn't know what you're talking about or, Generally, its line of code should end in a semicolon, and you forgot to add that, and now it doesn't know what to. It doesn't know how to actually run the program anymore. Those those issues tend to be resolved way before the you know the program gets pushed out there, just because they're easier to identify. It's sort of like uh, it's not as simple as this, but it's sort of like just doing a you know a spell check in Word. The more complicated bugs that exist are ones that have more to do with logic, right? And some of the you are adding you are adding ten to this variable here, but you're forgetting to to save the new value of that variable elsewhere. And so, when you try to you 
But if it's, a, if it's a, you know, a banking website, for example, you know, to, for you to manage your bank account, it, it might it might show different account values in different areas. And so that's not really a syntax related issue. I mean, the spell checker says it's fine. It's more of a grammar related issue where, or some other issue where you're using. You know how sometimes in Microsoft Word you have. Uh, the word like there, T H E R E, but you meant the other there, T H E I R. So the spell checker can't catch those things, but it does sort of mess up how the program actually runs. And so those are the more sophisticated bugs that exist that you know developers or <laughs> I myself have spent many many hours trying to find find out where the issue is. And finally, when you find it, you're like, oh come on, it was this that. And like, <laughs> um, but yeah, and. So. That was the one thing I, I always forget, even with writing and stuff, uh, for me, like getting out the first version, then you have to go back and do like the editing and going through to make sure there's no mistakes, to make sure what you're saying makes sense and the editing. And that takes sometimes longer than the actual writing process itself. And with debugging, it's the exact same way. You're going to have your application and you could figure out that there's some bug somewhere. It doesn't do something. Then you spend so much time just trying to find it. And like you said, sometimes it'll just be like, oh, I did, how, how could it possibly be that little thing? Or why didn't I see that before? But it's such a long process and it definitely needs to be taken into account. Right. And, and, and you know, the, the process by which you actually try to identify bugs after notice insist that, that they exist or, you know, a customer sort of comes to you and says, hey, look, you know, I've noticed that my account value is updating properly. What's happening? You know, the process by which engineers locate and sort of solve, you know, get rid of these bugs isn't as chaotic as, as uh, I may have just described. You know, there definitely is a sort of a deliberate process that uh, engineers use to you know, ass- you know, to flag these bugs, delegate, delegate to you know to whom is you know who's going to solve this bug, and and the actual process for testing these bugs, and and the book goes into detail as to the general process uh, that engineers use to you know efficiently move these bugs. So, so I, I think one of the important things too, if somebody is interested in actually learning how to code, uh, one of the best ways to kind of get in and learn is through GitHub, what's known as open source projects, which is where it's big applications that a bunch of people are working on and coding on together. And a lot of times they'll just have a sort of a list of different bugs or codes or features, and they just need people to work on and then just kind of, well, talking to them first, but going and starting on those is a great way to kind of get your feet wet, I guess. Yeah. In in terms of learning how to code? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that's certainly one area to start. And if you if you wanted to, you know, after reading the book, of course, and if you wanted to sort of like get more familiar with how exactly, uh, you know, how exactly these programming languages work, what are the major structures, uh, that sort of thing, before you actually start tackling, you know, the, the construction of a feature or the construction of an app, uh, you know, there's several great tutorials. You know, one that sort of often sort of quoted in, in, in new tech news and that uh, sort of thing is is uh, called Code Academy. And code, uh, yeah, um, there's, there's a, it's spelled a little different because the, the, the words sort of just merge. It's not Code, code Academy, Academy. Yeah. yeah, Code Academy. And I'll put a link um, to that in the show notes as well as I, I love Code School is another great one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so there are several that, that are sort of leveraging the ways in which technology can improve education in order to teach people technology, teach people coding. Um, so I definitely would, would recommend looking at one of, those, uh, one of those tools that are out there to learn how to code. Mm-hmm. So one of the last things I wanted to touch on is security, because 
it's so important, especially these days, for a website to be secure. And still headlines are uh, everywhere of like websites getting broken into. And what does it really mean for a website to be uh, insecure? And how are, how are these breaches happening and how can you avoid it? Sure. That, that, those are all loaded questions, but uh, yes, yes, they are. The, the, the ways in which every site is, you know, quote, hacked, uh, attacked, you know, whatever term you want to use, uh, are many. There, there are many ways in which uh, people can sort of infiltrate your 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 company, your company's databases, um, and there are many ways they. You know, many ways they can um, sort of tamper with your data, steal your data. Um, if they just want to you know, be chaotic, delete your data, whatever, whatever their goals are. Um, and so, you know, to, to apply some sort of blanket rule of this is typically how they enter, is typically what they do, it's not possible. And that also relates to just the general difficulty of securing a website. There's so many things you have to think about. There, um, there are, you know, so many ways that, you know, these hackers can get in, uh, which is why it's sort of a never-ending problem. It's, you know, every website sort of thinks they're all secured, and then the next day you, you, you know, you read a news article about, you know, how millions of, of usernames and passwords were, were released on the web. And so it's this constant sort of like rat race between, you know, how can we exploit some hole you haven't noticed versus, hey, we've secured all of our holes. Oh, wait, now they found another one. And so it, it's, it's sort of like this fight on, like, terrorism, you know, but just, you know, moved uh, to, to like internet tech and security, but the book basically tries to go through some of the some of you know the major ways in which hackers get into a website, and some of the major ways uh, that that you know startups try or tech companies try to defend against those types of attacks. But in general, it's you know it definitely requires a lot of a lot of um, attention to detail and being very sensitive to that because, as you said, I think privacy is a huge concern. Uh, in this day and age when so much of our information is moving online, uh, not just names and addresses, but credit card numbers, and social security numbers, and you know, even, even our, our habits, what we're buying, where we're buying, um, how we're buying, you know, all the friends who, are, who, we, who we love, who we, you know, who we talk to often, all of this information is out there stored in some database. And so people are very, very concerned that this data can in some way be used um, against them, against, you know, in some way, it's, it's kind of hard to sort of fathom how exactly all that data will be used, but people sort of have this visual reaction against that data being exposed. And so I think companies really need to pay attention to all of these concerns. Yeah, and that's, that's so true. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show. Again, the book is How to Speak tech uh it's available on amazon i'm going to put a link to it in the show note and if you want to understand tech if you uh if you're involved with working with developers if this kind of stuff is a foreign language you should definitely definitely check out the book and thank you for being a guest on the show thank you very much dan it was was my pleasure put a link to Vinay's book in the show notes and you should definitely check it out if you were interested in this episode. Also, if you like this episode, please go into iTunes, leave me a rating and review. And until next week, have a good one.